Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Speaker McCarthy is preparing a possible impeachment inquiry against Joe Biden. This is according to the Daily Wire and elsewhere. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a Republican out of California, said during an interview this week that the Republican-controlled chamber is moving closer toward an impeachment inquiry against President Joe Biden over allegations that he accepted millions of dollars in bribes from foreign countries. McCarthy's remarks come after Senator Chuck Grassley released an FBI-generated FD-1023 form last week in which a human confidential source told the FBI that Burisma co-founder and CEO claimed that he was, quote-unquote, coerced by then-Vice President Biden and his son paying millions of dollars in bribes in exchange for their help in pressuring Ukraine to fire a prosecutor who was investigating Burisma. So this is a very interesting development. And uh, my thought on this is why wasn't Kevin McCarthy and the new Republican House majority prepared to begin this impeachment inquiry literally day one of this past January when they all got sworn in and we have a new Republican majority because an impeachment inquiry, as we all remember from the the two impeachment hoaxes of of Donald Trump and, of course, um, the, the first one and, and leading into that investigation is when I started uh, working directly for President Trump and was one of his personal counsel uh, for that purpose uh, and, and then through the, the duration of his administration and presidency. Uh, that inquiry does not mean that impeachment articles must be filed. It's just an inquiry. So we have known about all of this and these uh, this alleged coercion and the uh, possible payouts and the millions of dollars in bribes and all of this about the firing of um, or the pressure of the firing of a prosecutor. All of this stuff we have known since before the first impeachment of Donald Trump. I mean, literally his first impeachment was over the phone call, remember, to President Zelensky in Ukraine asking about this and wanting more information. And he was impeached over that, which was utterly ridiculous. And he called it, you know, the perfect phone call and all this stuff. But all of that mess and the first impeachment related to what we already know that's been reported in the media and all of these questions surrounding Hunter Biden's business deals and Joe Biden's uh, business deals when he was the vice president and then uh, this coercion and this treatment moving forward into into the 2020 presidential election and then beyond. So uh, just that one very significant basis of an impeachment inquiry should have been prepared to launch literally day one. And I know we went through the whole speaker fight and all that stuff that lasted, you know, a week. Fine. As soon as Speaker McCarthy took office, he should have whipped the Republican majority and said, we are now going to start this inquiry for a couple of reasons. One, because there's a limited amount of time 
And the next election next year in 2024 may shift the majority, just like the midterm shifted the majority from the Democrats. And so that winded down the January 6th committee and what the Democrats were able to weaponize in terms of uh, those committees and their majority. And so there's limited time. But then second, the longer that McCarthy waited, now the Democrats have the ability to simply say, oh, this is so political and you're just wanting to go after a political opponent. And all of these things that Republicans said about Democrats, Democrats are now turning around predictably and using against Republicans saying the only reason that you're even contemplating an impeachment inquiry is because we're gearing up for 2024 and Joe Biden is your political opponent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if McCarthy and the Republicans had come into their new majority saying this has been on our agenda from day one, we don't care about the political optics. This is not about the court of public opinion. This is not about the ballot box. This is about Congress using their Article One authority for impeachment in not only acknowledging the constitutional process, but in a way that is discharging their duty under Article One as Congress to impeach uh, any office holders that fall under the federal impeachment clause in a responsible manner, because that's the purpose that our founders gave impeachment for. And I think, frankly, we don't use the power of impeachment enough. It shouldn't be political purposes ever. Uh, but it is a quasi-judicial forum. We've seen, again, through the most recent impeachments of President Trump and um, those of you and, and us. I mean, I, I, was, uh, I was more or less a kid. I mean, I, hadn't, <laughs> I was still in, I think, elementary school when uh, we had the whole Clinton impeachment. But I remember that. I mean, I remember my family listening to Rush Limbaugh, um, you know, praying for that whole process as a family. So I remember that, just not the, the particular details and so forth. Um, from a personal perspective, now just more historical. Uh, but what we what we understand with those processes is that it is quasi-judicial, meaning it's not the judiciary and it's not the typical uh, format like what we are seeing with President Trump's indictments, where you go for a first appearance, you go through the Department of Justice, you go through that whole uh, judicial forum track in a courtroom. The impeachment process is quasi-judicial in the sense that there are aspects of the judicial process, but with different venues. And so the impeachment paperwork, which is basically like the charges, like an indictment, is filed through a resolution in the House. So it's not a prosecutor uh, like in the executive branch of the United States Attorney's Office or a state and local level or like Alvin Bragg up in New York um, as as a uh, an AG, you know, anybody like that. Um, it is or, you know, the Manhattan DA, um, not the AG, uh, but that's, you know, what's her face up in up in New York. Um, so it's not through the executive branch and then goes into the uh, judicial forum. Impeachment is filed through a resolution in the House, and there are impeachment managers that act like prosecutors, and then there's a trial in the United States Senate. And the rules for conviction in the Senate are different than a typical jury because this isn't a criminal process. The punishment for conviction on impeachment is removal from office and the, uh, the lack of ability constitutionally to be able to hold federal office ever again. So it's not criminal sanctions or criminal penalties, but some 
protections within the constitutional parameters uh, like your right to have counsel, uh, your right to not testify against yourself, you know, some of those things um, still attach as well. So it's quasi-judicial in that sense. And and so it's very important that Republicans and, and Democrats as well, but I think they don't even care about the Constitution, that conservatives do not use the power of impeachment ever as a weaponization of government. This should not be an exercise in politicking. This should not be we're going to target our political opponents merely because they're a different party. And that was one of the large arguments that it was genuine uh, with the Democrats' persecution uh, politically of Donald Trump in the first and second impeachments and the Russia hoax and all of this other stuff, right? So Republicans should not say, well, we're going to turn around and do that against our political opponents. But they shouldn't, based on simply fear of the Democrats raising a political issue, be scared to move forward with impeachment processes and inquiries that are genuinely uh, founded in a constitutional basis. Uh, looking at the power of impeachment, why haven't we used this as a tool to say, hey, executive branch, whether it's Republican or Democrat or down the line, if there's an independent that's ever uh, elected to the, the office of president and has an administration, we are going to hold you to your Article II executive authority. And if you contravene that and if you break that, whether it's someone in the administration or it is the president or the vice president, whoever it is, or if there are judicial federal appointments under Article Three, uh, the federal judiciary are lifetime tenured appointments for a term of good behavior. Well, what does that mean, right? And some of this has, uh, has not really been fully fleshed out because we haven't used the impeachment process on the federal level in my opinion, nearly enough, because there are judges on the federal bench that will totally ignore the parameters of the Constitution. And if they knew that the potential threat of impeachment was genuinely real, if they violated their oath of office under the Constitution and they were not faithful to the text, well, we would have a lot more judges that maybe would have really good opinions. And and this is when when the founders first designed the constitutional process with impeachment as a mechanism by which the members of the House and the Congress uh, could hold the executive and judiciary federal branches accountable. This process of impeachment through the House, you have to get the majority, then you have to get the two-thirds majority conviction in the Senate. The founders presumed that the House and the Senate would act as independent arbiters and not use this solely for political purposes because the, the, the Congress is large enough that hopefully there would be such a threshold of that two-thirds majority that it would be very difficult to convict in the Senate. And that's what we saw with both impeachments of, of President Trump with the impeachment of President Bill Clinton. We didn't get a conviction in the Senate even though we had a trial because there weren't enough members of the Senate that voted to convict. And and yet, if we used that provision of the Constitution in Article 1 and that impeachment in the, in the way and for the purpose for which the founders designed it, we would have so much more accountability for the executive and the judiciary on the federal level than we do. You want to talk about a runaway judiciary? 
I mean, people talk about term limits for the judiciary and, you know, that's and judicial reform and, you know, some of these other more legislative solutions. And, you know, of course, um, through the Judiciary Acts, the uh, the Congress does have some control over, uh, you know, some aspects of the judiciary. We can do that through judicial reform. We can do that through a constitutional amendment to Article 3 through the uh, Article 5 process. Those are all really good debatable issues, and we should have those conversations as Americans and in our system of government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people. But we should also be talking about the power of impeachment and what is the purpose for which the founders designed that and gave that power exclusively to the legislative branch. And they can even use that um, against themselves. I mean, and so the legislature in Congress, they can expel members of their own chamber. And, and and again, they shouldn't do that for political purposes ever, but they should do that when they have runaway members that are violating their oath of office. And if we all stepped back from being Republicans and Democrats and this sort of war of the uniparty, which is infighting in a way that just perpetuates the power of the National Republican Party and the National Democrat Party. And we stepped back and we said, hold on a minute, we're all Americans. We all need to abide by the Constitution. We need to hold each other accountable, even if that's members of our own party. So that's clearly not political. That's just being faithful to the purpose of the Constitution. We would have such a better, more functional government. You might say, well, Jenna, that's obviously, you know, not going to happen. And, you know, that's that's uh, wishful thinking. And sure, it probably is in 2023 headed into 2024. That's that's likely not going to happen anytime soon. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have conversations about it. We should know as Christians, as conservatives, as Americans first, before we are members of any political party or you know, or, or um, endorsing any candidates or supporting any candidates, we should know what the Constitution requires, why it was designed, and we need to advocate to utilize the powers of the Constitution that are limited, but the powers that the federal government does have to check and balance each of their coordinate branches. Because if they're not willing to do that, or they're only willing to do it when it's a political reason, then we've lost the whole intention and design of our system of government. So go Kevin McCarthy, go impeach Joe Biden. I I think there is absolutely a legal and constitutional basis on several things, not just Burisma, but, you know, looking at how he's treated um, immigration, look at how he's just gone against the Supreme Court, but do it because it's the right thing, not because it's political. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And if you are not following my friend James Lindsay on social media, you absolutely should. He is uh, just a brilliant analyzer of everything going on in culture and was at the forefront of um, all of this woke Marxism that is being taught in uh, education and in all spheres and uh, and just has so many pithy different remarks that um, I learn a lot from him on social media. And I saw this particular post on Instagram the other day, and it says from James Lindsay, I just ran across the phrase, quote, sex assigned at birth 
in the wild, and I stared at it in all its obvious absurdity. For a moment, I couldn't imagine being a person who could possibly believe that's a way to describe reality. It's such proof of the Gnostic dualism of woke Marxism. There's you, a spiritual being, put into a mundane body that is then assigned a sex by a demagogic, I think I'm pronouncing that right, authority, which is subsequently... Uh, reified by the broader social order incarcerating you in a sexed body. So to define that word for me and to talk <laughs> more about this post is my good friend James Lindsay. So uh, James, you know, th- this is, I think, the same sort of premise that Nancy Piercy writes about in her book, um, Love Thy Body. And this whole idea that we live in this dualistic reality that our spiritual being has no connection whatsoever with our physical body um, is totally absurd. And this idea that we just have this randomly assigned sex at birth uh, is is an advancement of that narrative. And um, and so I let's let's just unpack that for a little bit. And welcome back to the show. Hey, yeah, thanks. Great to talk to you again, Jenna. Um, yeah, so a lot of people don't know what Gnosticism is. We've kind of lost track of the greatest heresy of all time. And the fact of the matter is that there is this kind of strong belief in these Gnostic threads that there's a very particular kind of dualistic, as it's called, relationship between body and soul, or between material and spirit. And in particular, where, you know, maybe a Christian perspective would be that, uh, you know, the spirit and the body are, in a very important way, co-continuous. The perspective in the Gnostic uh, religions, if you will, or cult religions, is that the spirit is what's actually truly real, and the material is this kind of evil, fallen world of images that actually is an imp- it's a prison set up for the body to be trapped uh, for the soul to be trapped into. And this, I think, is most visible when we start looking at these issues around gender, uh, gender ideology, transition, and queer theory, where uh, they take this quite literally, that you are trapped in a body that you didn't want to be born into. That is really fascinating as it relates to queer theory, because that's exactly what they're saying, is that however you feel, it doesn't matter how that correlates to the observable uh, sexed body. And and so this this continuum of being genderless, is that part of the how I, I think you're apt to say a Gnostic um, religion, but certainly a Gnostic ideology, that, um, that being trapped in a body is actually um, bringing down the spiritual component or is somehow uh, highlighting how the, the spiritual is now being trapped in a definition that it shouldn't be. Yeah, so the idea is that the that whatever you truly are, your your spiritual being or essence, maybe it's genderless or whatever, but it's been stuck into this body, and this body is a uh, victim of the the material fallen world that's created by an evil demon posing as God called the demiurge. That's the word demiurgic that I used in the tweets or the Instagram post, and so. Uh, 
you are to try to understand that you can know yourself better than who you really are, that you can come to know who you are at a spiritual level, and maybe it's sexless, or maybe it was meant to be the other sex, or maybe it's meant to take on the other sex so that you can transcend sex altogether, leave behind sex, and as Marx might have phrased it, talking about private property, he said that communism is the positive transcendence of private property is human self-estrangement. Well, you could change that to that this whole move in queer theory is, is the, uh, or queer liberation is the positive transcendence of sex as human self-estrangement. And so this is a very religious architecture. Um, it's a little more confusing if we want to unpack it a little more, because they actually say it's the soul that imprisons the body, and then the spirit is imprisoned in the soul. So it gets even more complicated. But uh, that's the overarching, the sex assigned at birth stuff, or what I actually read to be transparent was assigned male at birth, which I thought was preposterous to read it in print. Um, really lays into the idea that they believe that the spirit is somehow wholly independent of your physical form. And so that in some sense you could have been brought into the world the wrong way according to who you really truly are, which only you can know through, you know, secret inner gnosis. And this is just so bizarre. I'm talking to uh, Dr. James Lindsay, uh, who is uh, with New Discourses. You can find that at newdiscourses.com. as an excellent uh, podcast there, uh, a wide variety of books, including uh, Woke Racism, or is it or Race Marxism? Sorry about that. Titled Race Marxism. Um, excellent book. I've read that, and it's definitely one that you need like a full week on the beach to just sit there and read. Um, and James, you know, th- this is so interesting. That So, so what is the um the ultimate goal of this religion of uh woke marxism when they're trying to push all of this queer theory on the the public and in the culture to say if you were born in the wrong body only you can know that but they're also telling people but that could change at any given moment and so how do we even know that we can know how we feel and it it just seems like this is such vagary What's their ultimate goal and purpose? Well, there are multiple goals. There's kind of their spiritual goal, and then there's kind of the practical goal. Um, And the reason this, by the way, is so weird and difficult to comprehend and seems so upside down is because the first premise, really, of Gnostic belief is that what we perceive to be the world is an upside-down understanding of the world. That the true nature is spiritual, the material reality is all false, it's all evil illusions to trick us. And so their belief in the context of queer theory, is that the social order tells us how to be male and female, tells us how to be straight or even gay, it tells us how to engage in sexuality for particular purposes, and traps us. So the the social order becomes the spiritual world, like the Holy Spirit, but turned upside down and evil, that conditions people into believing the wrong things about the world. That's demiurge power. And so their goal on a spiritual level is to outsmart that so they can escape it, so they can break free of that uh, social conditioning and the expectations it brings with them, so they promise liberation from reality and an escape back to the spirit, in other words, to merge back with deity for the people participating. Practically, it's a little more, uh, I guess, uh, cynical or uh, prosaic. The goal is actually to confuse people, to bring them into a cult understanding, to break them away from reality, to derange them, because then they become useful activists for revolution, to 
break them from their families who might pull them back out of the cult, to break them from their faith, which might pull them back out of the cult and bring them healing, to break them from their country, which can't sustain such a population. Uh, and so the, the practical purposes are destruction, uh, absolute destruction in the pursuit of kind of a narcissistic, hedonistic, nihilistic uh, self-freedom from everything that anybody might ever tell you is how you're supposed to be. And, and this is uh, where the the founders of BLM and some of these other um, forces that have been obviously destructive to society um, have openly said, like there was one, um, one of the founders of BLM specifically said in a video clip that I was watching recently um, that, you know, we are educated uh, Marxists and, and that they are intentionally pushing some of these studies like the, um, the the Marxist and theory and the critical theory and and all of these different studies. And so while you know historically we've looked at it as just Marxism being more of an economic theory, all of this now is shifting to to cultural theories and purposefully trying to uh, invade culture with this notion of critical theory and Marxism. And so you mentioned um, earlier, James, to, to unpack this a little bit more and kind of this, um, not just the dualistic between the spirit and the body, but there's actually a distinction between the soul and the spirit as well. And so unpack that a little bit more. So the soul is the piece of you that fits into the broader spirit. So you can think that there is a, what Hegel actually was a philosopher who brought these thoughts to the West, the German idealist that brought these ideas to the West. He called it the Weltgeist, the world spirit. So there's this broad spirit that's like a current of how everybody contributes to society and what their mood is and how they act in public and what they think is right and wrong. That's the Weltgeist, the world spirit where it might belong to a certain ethnic people, and that's called the Volksgeist, the folk spirit that goes with a particular culture. And that those, you, your, your individual soul is just a part of that bigger giant current, that collective on the spiritual level, which is ultimately what they're trying to return to. But as far as like BLM and all this queer theory and all this, I can make it a lot simpler than all of this. Uh, complicated religion, the, the most important thing to take away from this Gnostic side of things is this is unambiguously a religious movement pretending to be a political movement. But the most important thing to realize in the practical sense is that stable things, stable societies don't willingly go into revolution. Stability repels revolutions. So the point of this is to get these cult ideas into people's heads, turn them into, you know, warriors for the cult, and to destabilize them mentally, emotionally, even physically, so that they demand the changes in the world that suits their cult mentality. And it's just so sad how so many people who are participating in this ideology really are just pawns of this greater scheme to uh, weaponize clear, queer theory in order to perpetuate revolution. And I'm talking with James Lindsay, um, who's with New Discourses. You can find that at newdiscourses.com and uh, his book as well, Race Marxism. And, uh, you know, from, from a practical perspective as well, James, um, you know, we are going to be left in the the coming years and decades and and we're already seeing some of this with a a whole generation of broken people who have bought into this who have 
uh, perhaps permanently altered their bodies with this so-called gender reassignment surgery, um, and some of them not even of their own choice. If we look at younger children whose parents have um, frankly, abused and victimized them to create this kind of a uh, queer child or or whatever they particularly want as as the commoditization of children. How are we as a culture, and um, and also and and I would say you know the church as well um, needs to be equipped to deal with the fallout of this and and how will that even how do we even start that. Uh, with knowing how many people are now becoming victims of this kind of cult mentality? Well, the scale of this is uh, huge, and we have to kind of understand that. Uh, People who have walked down this road, or especially people who have helped other people, like their own children, walk down this road, or children that they were in charge of taking care of and thought they were helping, so the good-natured, good-intentioned people participating in this, they have no easy road back. They have to admit to themselves and to the world that they did they visited tremendous harm on other people, particularly children, maybe their own children, and maybe themselves. There's no easy road back. So I'm so glad you brought up the church, because frankly, and I know you're never that far from the church, but uh, frankly, the answers are going to be exactly what you find in the Christian canon, which are repentance and forgiveness. Uh, those are going to be the recipes that are necessary to bring people back from this this horrible place. And I don't mean what they've done necessarily physically to their bodies, but mentally and emotionally, the places that they put themselves. So repentance and forgiveness. So the Church has an obligation to start trying to figure out how to minister, to bring people who are in those situations, not to the kind of angry, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God, Jonathan Edwards, repent, you know, kind of mentality, but kind of a loving repentance and a, yeah, this was a terrible mistake that you were led into that you took up, but we can forgive you for that, and you can forgive yourself. So the Church has an obligation to start thinking in terms of how do we start building a bridge for these people to walk back across and say, you know, I participated in this, and it was evil, and I thought I was doing good. Please forgive me. I repent of it. And start encouraging in that that in their ministry, and it's it's a it's a new area. It's what people might call green space, but the church should really be thinking very seriously in how it can reach to those populations uh, to try to help them find their way back. Really well said, James Lindsay, and um, and I couldn't agree more. I think that pastors, uh, in particular, need to be uh, concerned about this and need to have a plan not just for. Uh, the judgment uh, that is obviously of um, of the Lord that would say, you know, this type of lifestyle is is sinful, it's wrong, but then to um, to openly embrace people who are willing to repent and ask forgiveness and come into a saving knowledge of um, of the Lord and to say, you know, even if you look different, you have maybe per- permanently uh, visited this harm on yourselves or your children, there is forgiveness and restoration in the truth of the gospel of Christ. And that covers everything. And so it's incumbent upon Christians to understand that, to practice that, and to live that, that there is no 
unpardonable sin in terms of queer theory and uh, and people who want to get out of that and to come to the church. So uh, James Lindsay, really always appreciate your commentary. You can find him at Conceptual James on Twitter and, of course, at NewDiscourses.com. And I would really encourage everyone, get this book, Race Marxism, The Truth About Critical Race Theory. Um, it's, it's a tough read because James Lindsay is that smart. But uh, again, take a week on the beach. It's July still. And, uh, and read this book. You'll be very glad that you did. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And if you missed the last segment with my good friend, James Lindsay, a really, really important conversation about how the church needs to engage in the culture and really be prepared uh, to deal with the fallout of these false ideologies that are being perpetuated, especially on children with all of this queer theory, the LGBTQ stuff, and so many, uh, so many people who um, are not Christian, frankly, but, um, you know, a lot of people who would call themselves conservatives and say, you know, why are Christians so obsessed with pushing back against uh, the LGBTQ agenda? And you guys are just homophobic bigots and all of these other names. Well, it's because we care about truth and we should always care about truth. And we should care about truth even when it looks like <laughs> maybe we are not uh, towing the line of what the conservative, greater Republican tribe would espouse. And that has been an interesting uh, question for me uh, as a constitutional law attorney, as someone who has always uh, advocated for the Constitution and the protections that it provides to everyone. Because um, the Constitution, of course, does um, inform our supreme law. It is our supreme law. And the declaration is built um, on this recognition that our rights come from God, our creator. The sole purpose of government is to preserve and protect those rights. We have to build a moral and upright society. How do we do that? Through, uh, through the debate and discussion. And part of the First Amendment's protections, particularly in terms of speech as well as religion, allows for public disagreement and rights of conscience. And this right to disagree is so important when we look at, for example, what's going on in the whole Disney controversy. So I know that a few of you have asked me uh, why I would post a picture of, you know, going to Disneyland with my friends. Well, um, I actually did a podcast on The Jenna Ellis Show. You can find this at thejennaellisshow.com about a year ago, uh, roughly, with my good friend Penny Nance, who is, um, of course, the president and CEO of Concerned Women for America. And initially, when... When Disney as a corporation was um, objecting to the Florida Parental Rights and Education Bill, that was the context, they put out this statement um, that basically said that they were standing with the LGBTQ movement and they were going to use their considerable influence in the state of Florida to oppose that particular bill. And we all know the history of that, that the bill passed anyway, and um, Disney's lobbyists really didn't uh, make any sort of difference with the Florida legislature. And that parental rights and education bill, which I fully champion, it's great, was signed by Governor Ron DeSantis. So what happened was the conservative fallout against woke Disney. 
And there are a lot of reasons and there are a lot of things in particular to object to with Disney. And those things I don't participate in. I did not see, for example, or support the movie Turning Red, um, which was a sort of coming of age adolescent uh, film that I think had all of the wrong messages. Um, The movie Inside Out, for example, I did see that one. Some of these things like the Barbie movie, I went and actually saw the other day because I want to be able to comment not just from someone else's review, but I want to know what is being taught through our entertainment to the culture. Are there any good messages about it or what uh, what are conservatives saying, you know, what are uh, the leftists saying, but more importantly, what is the movie or the entertainment itself saying? Um, so the movie Inside Out, um, this was years ago from Pixar and Disney, taught basically this premise that Uh, to children that you're controlled internally by your emotions and whatever emotion is in control of you, that's how you act and behave. It's totally negating personal responsibility. And I thought that the premise, you know, while it was a cute movie because Disney packages this up uh, really well into cute uh, films, that's the whole goal. Uh, the message was wrong, and and I um, at the time um, you know didn't have my own shows, but at the time I was you know commenting on my social media and all of this um, about the content of the film. So there there are a lot of things to object to, uh, but then there are some things that are really good that that Disney does actually affirm. So for example, the candlelight celebration that's at Disneyland and Disney World. Uh, every year at Christmas, they have a Christmas party. They still call it Christmas. And um, it is a reading of the Gospel of Luke with the birth of the Savior. They don't change a word. They have hymns for Christmas music. It is a very intentionally Christian service. Um, and I love it. And I usually go every year that I can. And it's a wonderful presentation of the Gospel and of Christ uh, coming in the form of Uh, of humanity and taking on human flesh. And it's amazing that Disney still does this. And Disney, interestingly to me, as an entire corporation, um, is literally all-inclusive. And so um, there are things that I do participate in still as a Christian that are good, and I want to encourage Disney to do that. And And I will affirmatively fund those good things because if I just step away completely from Disney and step away from both the bad and the good, then I'm only leaving the consumer base to the people who do support pride merchandise, who do support uh, movies that that I think have a wrong message. And so what I have chosen to do and what I said on this podcast with Penny Nance is that I have chosen to use my voice and my dollars to fund the things that I do find family friendly and that are good and that are promoting truth. Because the more that we do that, then and, and if there is less of a consumer base for some of these other things, then ultimately Disney as a bottom line corporation will see that, right? And um, and we are seeing some of those more family-friendly things come back to Disney. And full disclosure, you know, my parents, uh, my mom grew up near Anaheim. Um, I went to Disneyland as a kid. And, you know, th- this is, is part of my family's memories um, are at Disneyland and Disney World. And so this is a nostalgic thing as well for me that is very family-friendly. So um, I don't have a conscious... Um, conscience issue as a Christian participating in the good things. If you do as a Christian, this is where uh, Paul in the conscience verses in the New Testament says that those who have freedom in Christ um, can, and he uses the example of eating meat that was offered to idols. Some of the early Christians 
uh, would not feel comfortable and, and would actually feel that it is sinful because of the meat that was part of this pagan ritual and said, I just have to stay away from that completely. And that may be because of their conscience. Um, they, th- they feel that they're participating in something that's morally wrong, or they are a former uh, pagan themselves. And so they just can't do that. And Paul says, that's fine. Don't disparage the Christian or, or speak down because his conscience does not allow him for that. But on the same hand, for the, for the Christian who does have the freedom in Christ, that th- it isn't objectively morally wrong to eat the meat o- uh, offered to idols, then when your conscience does allow you to participate in something that is not morally wrong, wrong, then for the Christian that he calls the weaker brother, don't condemn the Christian for participating in that. And and I view this in terms of whether it's participation in Disney um, or some of these other things that Christians talk about that are um, controversial. Um, Those are things that really come down to a matter of wisdom and conscience. And if you are a Christian that your conscience would not allow you to participate in anything Disney. I'm not going to suggest that you should do otherwise. I do, as a Christian, have um, a, a clean conscience and the freedom in Christ to participate in supporting with my time and my money the good things that I value about the family-friendly aspects of Disney. And I am and I am free to participate in that. It is not morally wrong. If I was going out and buying Pride merch, that'd be a totally different qu- question, right? Or if I was going, um, so for example, I don't ever ride Haunted Mansion. Um, that to me goes against my conscience because that entire ride is a celebration of death that is antithetical to the truth of the gospel of Christ. I can't do that as a Christian. And I refuse to do that. I decline to do that. Um, and there are some, there are some Christians that do. And, you know, I've been with friends at Disney where they say, Hey, we want to go ride Haunted Mansion. I say, go, you know, do that. I'll go, I'll go shopping or I'll go and, you know, watch a parade or, or something else. And I respectfully decline, but I don't argue about it. Um, so for me, posting some of these pictures, um, it was, it was just a great day, you know, with friends. Um, I have some, some really good friends in California who are Christians and we go and have a great day at Disney that, um, that we catch up and we talk and, and it's, and it's a great time. And, um, and so for me, part of my rationale for posting is not to flaunt that freedom, but to actually have these types of conversations that are really important. And actually, um, to me, that was a very non-political post in the sense of, you know, so much of this has been like Trump versus DeSantis. And if any of you follow me on social media, and I know a lot of you do, you're seeing kind of the the vitriol and the back and forth that we've talked about so much on this program. And so to me, it was something like, hey, let's let's talk about something else. And this opens a an opportunity for me to not only explain my view, but to help people hopefully understand some of um, the conscience verses in the Bible and and help people, I think, um, consider this in a more circumspect view than just, well, if this is the current Christian culture narrative that we have to boycott Disney, then if I choose something else, I need to feel guilty about that, or I need to just go along to get along. I think that we need to be more circumspect Christians than that. And we need to, for ourselves and our families, decide what do we understand about liberty in Christ? And of course, liberty and freedom, when it comes to liberty in Christ, it is the freedom to do what we ought. And, and so this is a matter of wisdom. Um, there are definitely things uh, that I would 
participate in as an adult that I might not, you know, bring a child to because the subject matter is just more complicated or it'll be more controversial and I want to think through it, understanding what the world is saying, um, like going to see the Barbie movie, for example. Um, I'm not going to take my nephews to go see that, right? I mean, they're, they're four. They wouldn't have fun anyway. Um, but I'm going to go see it to, as a Christian, I want to know what is the world saying in pop culture so that I can parse that for myself and especially for you, uh, the AFR family and, and my audience on Salem as well, talk through these things from a more sophisticated biblical perspective, frankly, than just, oh, if it's put out by the world, it's automatically wrong. We have to understand how to be Christians in the world. And I know that for some of you, this will be controversial and you'll say, well, how could you possibly you know, be a Christian and participate in some of these things? It's the same question that you know some churches um, don't allow women to wear pants, for example. And so, uh, so when I have been invited as a speaker to come in and speak at whether it's a Sunday morning or 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 an evening service or a Wednesday evening service, even that can be controversial. I've had some churches that say we would never invite you as a woman to speak on Sunday mornings. Other churches are saying I'm not holding myself out as a pastor, so of course come in and speak on uh, on Sunday morning and and talk about the law. And how that relates to the Christian life and all the things that we talk about. For me, as a matter of conscience, as a Christian, I need to be very clear. Women cannot hold the position of pastor or elder. I do not hold myself out as that. But if if a church says, come speak on Sunday morning and they invite me, I'm happy to do it. If a church says, we can't have you speak Sunday morning, we'd prefer you to speak Sunday evening, I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to comply with their their conscience on that level. Because what does it matter to me if it's Sunday morning or Sunday night? I don't have a particular uh, conscience issue with either of that. Now, if I was a female speaker that did have an issue on Sunday morning, I'd let them know that. And hopefully a church that invited me on a Sunday morning would defer to me and say, sure, come speak Sunday night. The same thing when I ask, um, is it permissible or what's the culture of the church for women wearing skirts versus pants? You know, sometimes that can be a stumbling block. And I don't care. I'm fine as a woman wearing pants or a dress. I want my message to glorify the Lord. And so if it's a church that prefers me as a woman to wear a dress, I just do it. And it's okay with me. So these are the same types of questions that we need to be asking ourselves when we are participating in activities, when we're dealing with other Christians, that their conscience uh, under the, the Holy Spirit may dictate that they are more free than we are. We are more free than them. That's the purpose of what t- Paul talks about with the conscience verses and the example of the meat uh, sacrificed to idols. So so there may be things that you and I differ on where I'm more conservative than you are or you're more conservative than I am in terms of a willingness to participate in some things, but I want you to know where I'm coming from because my intention will never to be be to be to to flaunt my freedom in Christ or to participate in things that are questionable. I will always have a rationale and a thought through a reason for doing so. And so my participation in Disney in particular is because I want to fund the good family friendly things and because I have been a um, Disney Vacation Club member and annual pass holder for literally decades um, and my family has, I want to continue having a voice in that company to say we should affirm the good things and the family friendly things. They're never going to be a Christian company, but 
few companies, I mean, if we are going to live as Christians in the world, we're going to have to engage with some measure of secular companies and secular issues. And we have to learn how to navigate that without diminishing our witness. And so um, so I, I don't have time today, but I want to talk um, at some point more about uh, the DeSantis versus Disney thing as well, because my bottom line on that is that even if I disagree with what Disney said, they have the right to say it under the Constitution without the state retaliating for them exercising their First Amendment rights in the exact same way that if Gavin Newsom was coming after Chick-fil-A, we would all be like, that we, he can't do that. Well, DeSantis can't do that to Disney any more than Gavin Newsom can do that to Chick-fil-A. So you can listen to uh, my podcast on that as well more. Uh, but we'll continue to talk about all these things. You can reach me, Jenna, at AFR.net. And we'll be back with more tomorrow here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning to talk about living the Christian life in the midst of the world faithfully to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.